Hi guys and welcome to Training Time Out. <clears throat> I'm Mike Lovejoy, training professional with over a decade of experience in technical training, instructional design, and instructor development. On this podcast, we'll explore all things training. Things like making your training more interactive and engaging, instructional design, and even some psychology of learning. So let's get to it. Welcome to episode two of Training Timeout. So before we get into the actual nuts and bolts of discussing training in later episodes, I really wanted to kick things off by discussing one of my favorite topics, psychology. I love psychology. To me, to understand the inner workings of the mind is like unlocking the keys to the universe. With this being a training podcast, more appropriately, we're going to discuss the psychology of learning. So there's many different theories out there when it comes to how we learn. So I'm going to briefly talk about three of the leading theories those being behaviorism, cognitivism, and constructivism. What's considered their heyday or the height of their popularity and some notable names uh, for each of these. First off, what is learning? Simply put, learning is the acquisition of skill or knowledge. However, it's how we acquire that skill or knowledge is where the real differences arise in these different theories. Learners, especially adult learners, all have different learning needs. So by applying various aspects of each of these different learning theories, it can really help make learning or training more effective. So let's start at the beginning. Let's talk about behaviorism. So behaviorism's heyday was considered to be the 1790s through to the 1950s. And some notable names for behaviorism are Edward Thorndike, James B. Watson, and B.F. Skinner of the Skinner Box uh, notoriety or infamy behaviorism basically states that all learning is the result of observable interactions with the environment through a process called conditioning so think of pavlov and his salivating dogs every time that he fed his dogs he would ring a bell therefore eventually they became to associate the ringing of the bell with being fed so eventually he would condition them to salivate just by ringing the bell take the food away no food involved ring the bell they would anticipate that they're going to be fed therefore they would start salivating cats anybody has cats thinking the same thing you know if you're giving them wet food the sound of the can opener might bring them running or with my cats the sounds of a treat bag they hear that treat bag rattling they come running because they are conditioned to think they're getting treats when they hear that sound so that's kind of conditioning in a nutshell. You're uh, ingraining these behaviors or these desired responses into somebody. And we'll get a little bit, a little bit more deeper into that, but not much. So back then, with psychology still in its infancy, early behaviorists wanted the discipline to be viewed with greater scientific relevance. It was kind of just a uh, um, uh, it wasn't really considered a hard science at this point. Um, it was more of a, I don't know, passing fad at this point. So therefore, they wanted all the study to be conducted in a scientific manner to kind of uh, give it that relevance. So while behaviorists often accept the existence of cognition and emotions, they prefer not to study them because these aren't really observable things. Uh, this was considered the behaviorist metaphorical black box. 
So the black box was we can observe the inputs, what goes in, and the outputs, what comes out. But the inner workings of the mind, what's contained inside that black box, is closed to us. So therefore, only observable or external behavior can be objectively or scientifically measured, according to the behaviorists. Internal events like thinking and emotions, memory, um, should only be explained through behavioral terms or just eliminated from that process altogether, not even considered um, when measuring them. Another basic assumption of behaviorism is we are all born as blank slates or what they call the tabula rasa. When we're born, we basically know nothing. We're strictly a product of our environment. Learning takes place over time based on our responses to various stimuli. Really a product of repetition and reinforcement. So repetition and reinforcement through rewards and punishments really became the cornerstone of behavioral learning. And ultimately recognize or reward the desired behaviors and that would reinforce the likelihood of them being repeated. You know, punish the undesired behaviors to uh, minimize them. And so that was kind of behaviorism in a nutshell. So now we're going to move on to cognitivism. So cognitivism, uh, its heyday was considered uh, around the 1950s to the 1990s. Some notable names include George Miller. So any, any good instructional designer should recognize that name. Um, Jerome Bruner. Noam Chomsky, and Albert Bandura. So cognitivism focuses on the processing of information that goes inside people's minds. This encompasses a wide array of areas, including perception, attention, language, memory, thinking, and consciousness. So the dates of kind of the rise of cognitivism are notable because the rise of cognitivism and the rise of computers are kind of inextricably linked. So the new, that new machine back then, the computer's ability to process information, gave psychologists kind of an analog to the mind. Basically, they viewed it as a simple, organic computer that processes new information. The black box of behaviorism was soon to be cracked open. So instead of emphasizing memorization like the behaviorist's approach, um, using that process of repetition and reinforcement. Cognitivism focuses on processing information, connecting it to past knowledge for more robust learning. They didn't consider that we're all empty vessels waiting to be filled with knowledge by an instructor. Um, cognitivist instructors seek to guide learners by bridging what participants already know with what they don't. The cognitive approach accommodates the process by controlling the flow of information through techniques like chunking, appealing to multiple learning styles, and strategies to enhance the retention of learning. So this brings us to our third and final theory, constructivism. So constructivism, the height of its popularity was considered starting around the 1990s to present, even though the ideas came about much earlier than that. Some notable names include Jean Piaget, Lev Vygotsky, and Jerome Bruner. Constructivism is based around the idea that learners are active participants in the process. They're making meanings through interactions with each other and with the environment. As events occur, each person reflects and incorporates new ideas onto the foundation of their prior knowledge 
in essence, the construct and constructivism. Identifying the participant's level of knowledge prior or level of prior knowledge is a vital first step in the trainer's success when using the constructivist approach. New knowledge and skills modify what's already known, and learning occurs when the new knowledge is used to engage in problem-solving experiments or application. In short, without application, information may be received, but really an understanding does not occur. If you don't actually practice what you're learning, incorporate that into what you already know, um, you know, that deeper sense of understanding, um, generalization later on won't, you know, the retention won't be there. So in addition, learning was really viewed as a social activity rather than a solitary process. Constructivist learning is often instructor-led, but what we call participant-centered, where the responsibility of the learning falls mainly onto the latter. The participant is really responsible for their participation in the learning. So the role of the instructor is to create a collaborative, problem-solving environment and provide scaffolding or reinforcement in the forms of hints, clues, activities that are adapted to the needs of the learners. So they're not necessarily going to give them the answer. They're going to help lead them so that they can determine the answers and solve the problems on their own. And this is done through, often through uh, small group activities or discussions between participants, while the instructor takes more of a facilitation role and they're focused on providing context, interpretation, and then judgment of the participants' shared conclusions or takeaways. So that's three perspectives on the psychology of learning. So the next segment, next up, what we're going to talk about is inf influential psychologist Robert Gagne and his conditions in learning and why he's kind of considered the godfather of instructional design. Welcome back to part two of episode two of Training Timeout. So I want to delve a little bit further down the psychology rabbit hole, kind of at the, um, the conflux of uh, psychology and training or instruction um, by talking about a gentleman who kind of, kind of is known as the pioneer of the field of instructional systems design. At least his work led to um, kind of that field, a field I, I've worked in for the past 11 years or so. A field I enjoy very much. It's a uh, that process to develop training, um, something I really enjoy doing. So I wanted to kind of honor uh, Robert Gagne's kind of influence in that field. So I'm going to kind of cover a bit of his early life and education, and then more um, dive a little bit more into his uh, conditions of learning and how it applies to developing training. So Robert Mills Gagne, it was an American educational psychologist, which he's best known for his seminal work, The Conditions of Learning. Uh, he pioneered the science of instruction during World War II when he worked with Army, Corps, Army Air Corps training pilots. He wanted to develop a series of studies and works that simplified and explained what he and others believed to be good instruction. And that's what kind of led to the um, process several different processes uh, involved in instructional systems design or ISD. I'll refer to it from here on out. 
Let's get into his early life here. So Robert Mills Gagne was born on August 21st in 1916 in Andover, North Andover, Massachusetts. In high school, he decided he wanted to study psychology and perhaps be a psychologist after coming across and reading several psychological texts. In his valedictory speech of 1932, Gagne professed that the science of psychology should be used to relieve the burdens of human life. Wow, that's pretty lofty ideals for a uh, high school student. Um, from there, he went on to receive a scholarship to Yale University, where he received his bachelor's in 1937. Uh, continuing, continuing on with his education, he received his master's and his PhD at Brown University, where he studied conditioned operant response of white rats as part of his thesis. So going back to, you know, shout out back to the behaviorists and conditioned responses. His first college teaching job uh, started in 1940 at Connecticut College for Women. His initial studies of people rather than rats, though, were interrupted by World War II. In the first year of war, he was at Psychological Research Unit Number 1 in Maxwell Field, Alabama. And there he administered and scored aptitude tests to choose and sort aviation candidates. So thereafter, he was assigned to officer school in Miami Beach, and he was ultimately commissioned as a second lieutenant and assigned to the School of Aviation Medicine, Randolph Field, Fort Worth, Texas. So after the war, he held a temporary faculty position at Penn State University before ultimately returning to Connecticut College for Women. In 1949, he accepted an offer to join the U.S. Air Force Organization that became the Air Force Personnel and Training Research Center, where he was research director of the Perceptual and Motor Skills Lab. In 1958, he returned back to academia as a professor at Princeton, where his research shifted focus to the learning of problem solving and the learning of mathematics. In 1962, he joined the American Institutes of Research, where there he wrote his first book, uh, known as The Conditions of Learning. He spent additional time in academia at the University of California, Berkeley, where he worked with graduate students. He worked with another psychologist named W.K. Roher and presented a paper called Instructional Psychology to the Annual Review of Psychology. In 1969, he finally found a lasting home at Florida State University, where he had come to meet his professional partner he'd worked with pretty much for the rest of his career, career uh, L.J. Briggs, and they collaborated on the principles of learning. From there on, he went to publish the second and third editions of the Conditions of Learning. Just a little bit about his personal life. Uh, he was married um, to a woman named Pat. She was also a scientist. She was a biologist. They have a son, Sam, and a daughter, Ellen. His non-professional pursuits included constructing wood furniture, something I also enjoy, uh, and reading modern fiction. And in 1993, he finally retired uh, to Signal Mountain, Tennessee, where he lived out the rest of his life, and sadly died in 2002 at the age of 85. Conditions of Learning Gagne's 1965 work remains a foundation of instructional design today. And you can see that 
through um, just in the period of 1985 to 1990. Um, it was cited in very prominent journals over 130 times in just that five-year period. So even today, um, it's still a very foundational document. So it synthesizes ideas from both behaviorism and cognitivism. Um, through that, he provides a very clear template, which is easy to follow uh, for designing instructional events. The model is based on triggering the internal learning process through external instructional events. So the idea of affecting what goes on in that black box of the mind um, through very observable external events. So again, kind of those two different um, theories or learning theories kind of blended in together and um, also it deals with uh, or adds some constructivism to it, in my opinion. So I'm going to just very, this is where we're just going to be very, you know, scratching the surface of his nine events of instruction here. Uh, we'll talk about the external process that he identified and how that affects or what the internal process that he also identified, how they kind of correlate with each other. So he kind of identified that as we're learning kind of a nine step process our brain goes through, um, how our mind kind of works and how you as an instructor or an instructional designer or facilitator can use that process to enhance learning. Things you can do you know, externally that are going to enhance those internal cognitive processes going on. So let's start number one. The external process is get attention, get the learner's attention. Uh, obviously, you'll never have any chance of imparting any kind of knowledge or skill or anything if you don't first have their attention. And what this does is it plays on the internal process of alertness. So you've got their attention. So what comes next must be pretty important once you have their attention. Uh, number two is set the objectives or present the learning objectives. So you want to identify to the learners, you know, at the end of the training, this is what's going to be expected of you to be, um, what you're going to be expected to be, to be able to perform or to do or to know, uh, especially if there's some kind of assessment that goes along with that, some kind of formal assessment possibly. And this plays on the internal process of expectancy. So when you're telling them what to expect, it's a preview of what, what kind of, um, what the subjects of the learning are going to be. Um, obviously, just makes sense to identify that up front. Hey, this is our learning agenda, our learning objectives. This is what we're going to be covering. So they kind of have an idea going forward. So number three, probably the most important, one of the most important um, aspects in Gagne's uh, view and in, in what his research told him was uh, recalling prior knowledge or recalling prior learning. Again, that foundation of what does this person already know um, and how can I build upon that? Again, kind of going back to those cognitivist ideas, that was one of the most important things is kind of figuring out your starting point. What do they already know and how can I build upon that? Um, and what this does, it, it um, interacts with the internal process of retrieving memories. So those memories are kind of brought into the, the working memory um, and much easier to kind of bring that to the forefront and then add on to the, those 
that existing knowledge than to kind of start from scratch. Number four, present the content. So here's where the actual instruction takes place, the presentation takes place, the lecture, the video, whatever aspect or whatever different uh, form of learning is being um, given to the learners. And this plays upon the internal process of selective perception. So you're showing them what you want them to see. You're telling them what you want them to know. Um, they're not, you know, figuring it out on their own. You're providing them with, hey, this is what you, this is what we're learning. You're, you know, it's not a, uh, it, they're, you're telling them what they need to pay attention to, basically. Number five is providing learner guidance, and that's providing examples, non-examples, um, the processes that maybe you're, that take place in, in something you're describing, like in, you know, performing a skill or of some sort. Um, you're giving them, you know, tips or um, ways of making the process easier or maybe you know, devices to, to help retain in their memory. And what this does is you're helping them take that content and helping them to encode it into their memory. And obviously this is, this process is going to repeat itself. It's not something that's going to take place once and one time you're done, obviously drawing on those behaviorist principles of reinforcement and repetition is going to play a part in this as well. So you may need to go back, present the content, provide that learner guidance. Um, and then after that is elicit performance. You know, get them to perform, practice, you know. And this uh, correlates to the process of retrieval. They're retrieving the learning from memory. Um, and, and you're seeing what they, what they uh, actually retained. As they're performing... You're providing, number seven is provide feedback, you know, telling them in a constructive way what they did good, what they need to work on, you know, how they might go about performing that skill or that, um, uh, explaining that knowledge in a little better fashion, a little more clear and concise fashion. So you're providing the, that feedback to them and that's going to reinforce the learning so again, this is a cycle you're kind of going to go through. It's going to repeat back through this. Uh, you know, you're going to go back, maybe present the content again, provide guidance, get them to practice, see what they, you know, where they're where they stand still, and then provide more feedback. Ultimately, though, we're going to come to number eight, which is assess performance. So whether it's formal or informal, you have to see where they kind of stand as far as did they retain the information. Did they retain the the skill? Um, so in this is cueing uh, memory retrieval, cueing or, or retrieval from memory, seeing how they retained it. And again, you may need to go back to the presenting the content, providing the guidance, and eliciting performance and providing feedback. It's a cycle that repeats. It's not again not just a, a one time and done process. And ultimately, what we're trying to get get to is uh, number nine enhanced transference and that aligns to the internal process of generalization so maybe you're presenting them a very specific 
scenario. Um, but what you want them to do is uh, learn that skill or that knowledge well enough that they can generalize it and apply it to different situations. So then there's things you can also do with enhancing transference uh, when they go back to the job site as far as providing job aids, um, scaffolding, learning, you know, reinforcement learning, refresher training, that type of thing. Well, that wraps this episode of Training Time Out. In future episodes, we'll continue to explore what makes good instruction. I hope you'll subscribe to us on Spotify, Google, Apple, or whatever your favorite podcast app is, and share the show on social media. Thanks again so much for listening, and we'll see you again on the next episode.